weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway of the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, March 21st, 2008, and I'm Adrienne Burke. Michael Oppenheimer is the Albert G. Milbank Professor of Geosciences and International Affairs in the Department of Geosciences at Princeton University. He's also Director of the Program in Science, Technology, and Environmental Policy at the Woodrow Wilson School. Oppenheimer joined the Princeton faculty after more than two decades with Environmental Defense, a non-governmental environmental organization, where he served as Chief Scientist and Manager of the Climate and Air Program. He's also a longtime participant in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, which won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2007. He's presently serving as a lead author of the IPCC's fourth assessment report. He spoke in January at an event called Climate Change, State of Science and Adapting to the Inevitable, which was hosted at the New York Academy of Sciences by the Academy's Green Sciences and Environmental Systems Program. I was asked to give sort of a general overview of the climate problem and um, talk about the rapid changes that are occurring today in the system, and I'm going to try to move rapidly because there's a lot to talk about. As we know, the basic basics of the problem are this. Certain gases that exist naturally in the atmosphere, water vapor, carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide, are transparent to sunlight, which comes through and warms Earth's surface. These same gases trap heat that would otherwise escape into space. That's a good thing. Of course, without the natural greenhouse effect, Earth would be about 30-some-odd degrees Celsius cooler than it is today. It would be a frozen desert. Not only would you and I not be talking here, but life as we know it would not have evolved. The greenhouse problem arises because the levels of those gases, many of them are being increased by human activity, most particularly carbon dioxide, the major source of which is fossil fuel burning. Here we have a record which goes back about 10,000 years, here's today, of the levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere as recorded in samples of the ancient atmosphere trapped in air bubbles that are retrieved from the center of Antarctica, Greenland, and certain glaciers. And we notice that carbon dioxide levels, despite a bit of a drift here over the last few thousand years, were basically stable and then went up like a rocket ship over the last 200 years, which is represented in this inset. And it's rather remarkable that even on this, uh, on this more detailed time scale, the increases seem to be quite abrupt, and there are similar increases that have been recorded in methane and nitrous oxide, two other greenhouse gases. And the physical re- reality that's associated with these changes is quite striking. Um, these gases, first of all, long-lived, particularly carbon dioxide once it's in the atmosphere, will still be there, most of it, many decades from now. A significant fraction, even a millennium from now, some of the carbon dioxide that uh, the first Model T emitted is coursing through your lungs as you breathe, or at least the the signal of that uh, carbon dioxide emitted a long time ago. And as I said, a thousand years from now, some of this gas will still be in the atmosphere, a significant chunk, so that what we're doing today commits us for long, long periods of time. Climate changes are already underway. The Earth system is already changing pervasively. Most important, and something I'd like to emphasize in this talk, is that we've had certain episodes of climate extremes recently, some of which may have had nothing to do with the the buildup of the greenhouse gases, but which present a vivid image, an analog of the future, and which 
underscore the incredible limitations in our abilities to adapt successfully to climate change and are a warning, in my view, of troubles that are inevitable in the future. Furthermore, our recent work on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change underscores that a relatively modest warming may turn out to be unmanageable for many countries and certainly many individuals. In fact, it's beginning to look that a warming around two degrees Celsius above today's level already entrains us in situations that really we'd rather not get involved with and that the climate changes above that level simply get more and more problematic. I'll emphasize the uncertainties in all of this, but it's worth noting that we are not too far from an area of risk that looks very high. Finally, the window of opportunity, as I'll show at the end, to avoid that level of risk is diminishing rapidly or shrinking or closing. Uh, there's a lot of information on this graph, but just uh, uh, to show you two things, this is the buildup of greenhouse gases since 1970. Here we have the most recent data, and there's obviously been a continuous increase. And the biggest part of the, of the problem is carbon dioxide from fossil fuel use, although there are lots of other sources, and I'll point in particular to carbon dioxide from deforestation. Agriculture is a big source of not only carbon dioxide, but methane and nitrous oxide. Anybody who saw An Inconvenient Truth is familiar with this graph, so I won't go into it in detail. How many of you saw An Inconvenient Truth? Okay, so oh, you don't need the details. There are two messages in this graph. One, here's carbon dioxide today. All right, that's where Al went up on the cherry picker to show that point. <laughs> this is data from ice cores going back about 400,000 years. It actually data has now been analyzed back about 650,000 years, ice core data. And the oldest ice retrieved seems to be about a million years old, so we'll get some, even some, some, some older data. But the, these, these are two curves, the black of the inferred temperature, in this case in, uh, from the uh, atmosphere above Antarctica from which the snow fell that formed the ice that wound up in these ice cores as much as 400,000 years ago and here's today. And the blue curve is the change in levels of carbon dioxide over that time. The, uh, actually makes three points. One, again, the carbon dioxide levels today are about a third above any level that was achieved in actually the whole 650,000 years. The second point is that there's obviously a close relationship or association between the ups and downs of carbon dioxide and temperature over that period. And the third point is that although we do not know the specific mechanism that links carbon dioxide and temperature, we know that these peregrinations were triggered by changes in Earth's orbital inclination uh, the, the, as that drove Earth in and out of ice ages. Here's a warm period. Here's the depths of the last glaciation. Here's today. Um, and that um, furthermore, we know that these temp the difference in temperature between a cold period and a warm period cannot be explained unless you invoke the difference in the amount of greenhouse gas between a peak and a minimum. So the picture fits together, even though we don't understand all the details. And it's a natural experiment, which more or less proves that the greenhouse theory is correct. Now, these changes, this priming of the atmosphere for a big climate change, has already had pervasive effects, as I said. Uh, this is 1850, and this is today. And we note that Earth's temperature, the global mean temperature, has increased uh, almost steadily over the whole period. And that's not just the global mean temperature at the surface. It's the temperature of the northern hemisphere, the temperature of the southern hemisphere, the temperature 
at the ocean surface, the temperature at the land surface, the temperature a few kilometers up in the atmosphere, uh, temperatures if you drill below the surface of, of, of uh, the land, temperatures if you drill below surface of the ice, all show the signal of the greenhouse warming. And in response, the sea level is rising. Sea level rises because as glaciers melt, the water has to go somewhere. And as the world's warming, glaciers are melting. And sea level is rising because most uh, fluids, when you heat them, they will expand. And most troubling, sea level has begun to rise a little bit further than all of that recently because the margins of the great ice sheets in Greenland and Antarctica are fraying away. Um, and this is a picture of the... Um, trend in snow cover in the northern hemisphere and as expected if you go say to Minnesota in April the snow isn't where it used to be and that's an indication of the decline in the snow uh, in the area covered by snow. So changes in temperature, sea level, uh, the extent of glaciers and snow, extremes of heat which have gone up, frequency of extremes of cold which have gone down. Intensity of rainstorms, the atmosphere is moistened because of evaporation from the ocean surface. In general, rainstorms are more intense, the intense rainstorms are more intense, the gully washers. But at the same time, the additional moisture is not uniformly distributed, and some areas appear to be drying out. Tropical cyclones, like hurricanes, appear to have gotten more intense. As we'll hear later, I'm sure the ocean is growing more acidic because carbon dioxide would change the uh, the the buffer balance of, this, of waters and eventually drive the ocean in a direction of, of uh, lower pH, and that started to happen. And most tellingly and most troubling to me, this is my personal, the thing I worry about the most, the ice sheets have started to fray away at their margins. So here are a few pictures, some of which you may have seen already. This is the, ex the red is the extent of the Arctic ice pack at the beginning of the satellite era. The white, it, this is the summer ice pack. The white is the extent in a recent year. I think this is 2003. Here's the aggregate data from um, 1980 through today, actually 2005, with a uniform downward trend in summer sea ice pack extent. Um, this is not all probably Let's put it this way. We cannot uniquely associate this change with the buildup of greenhouse gases. There are other factors like changes in atmospheric and ocean circulation. On the other hand, some of those factors themselves may be driven by the buildup of the greenhouse gases. So even if the temperature effect directly isn't what's going on here, indirectly the buildup of the greenhouse gases could be responsible for the lion's share of the change. In any event, this is certainly partly due to the buildup. Uh, glaciers are retreating almost uniformly. This, this one glacier here in Peru, this is the way it was about 30 years ago. This is from the same perspective today. And we see the, gl the global curve uh, covering uh, six widely separated areas of the globe. This is what's happening to glaciers. On the whole, they are retreating. Uh, my wife took this picture, so I am forced to show a polar bear picture like everybody else. Uh, but this does make a point. According to the IPC, these animals, of course, live in a very specialized circumstance. They live in a niche which is shrinking because they do, as I saw myself, hunt from uh, f uh, floating sea ice. As the sea ice shrinks, which it is doing, uh, their ability to hunt, the terrain from which they can hunt will shrink. I don't think that uh, polar bears are going to go extinct because of the disappearance of sea ice in the summer. I think what will get them eventually, I think the last one will either be in a zoo or it will be shot rummaging through a garbage dump in Churchill. 
that's basically what will happen eventually. They'll be forced to live off, uh, make a living in a smaller area, which is land and where they're not safe. And overall, IPCC projects that this sort of phenomenon, the shrinking of ecological niches, is going to result in a rather substantial additional extinction. In fact, about 30% of all species on Earth are at risk of extinction over the next few hundred years for a warming somewhere in the neighborhood of 1 to 3 degrees Celsius above today. Remember that number. I'll come back to it. We uh, Human beings are not immune from these changes and have already felt some of the consequences. And I'll point in particular to the fam now famous heat wave that struck Western Europe in 2003. Um, about up to 40,000 deaths have been uh, attributed to the direct and indirect effects of that heat wave. I find two things rather striking about it. Number one, Nobody could have predicted it. Nobody did predict it. None of our, that is, predicted such an event could happen. The previous experience in an industrialized, rich country with fast response systems, supposedly, uh, you know, the previous experience was that about uh, 800 people died in a big heat wave in the Midwest in 1995. And if you had asked our colleagues, you know, right here, this is the heat wave. One week before the heat wave, how many people could die in a heat wave in Western Europe? They would have said, you know, maybe 1,000, maybe not. 40,000. We didn't expect it. And the interesting thing is that if we had been prepared for it, a lot of those people probably didn't have to die. Things can be done as a heat wave starts to protect people. They weren't done. So this is the death rate in the heat wave. This is the death rate starting in January 2002. There's a seasonal oscillation. Here's a pretty big influenza epidemic. It's remarkable that the heat wave had a bigger effect on the death rate than the influenza epidemic. And this is lesson number one. It's not easy for us to adjust to climate extremes, even those that we know can happen. This was a very unusual event, but it, according to the computer simulations, the buildup of the greenhouse gases made it more likely. And as the century goes on, events like this, which under natural conditions are a once-in-a-thousand-year event, may become a once-in-a-decade event or even more frequent if the higher end of the projections comes to pass. The other big event we've had experience with indicating our limit, limited abilities to adapt, of course, was Hurricane Katrina. Tropical cyclones, as I said, appear to be getting more intense. There's no particular evidence that Hurricane Katrina was juiced up by the buildup of the greenhouse gases. There's really no way to know on a storm-by-storm -storm basis. But it does reveal the utter sheer futility of our of our ability to adapt. It's remarkable. The more you think about it, again, if a week before that somebody had said, you know, a half of American city is about to evaporate, a major city, who would have thought? Not possible. Surely we can anticipate something like a hurricane. Surely we know a vulnerable situation when we see it. Surely we will set up a reasonable evacuation plan. Surely we will be prepared afterwards to take care of the people who were stuck there or the people who left. None of that happened. None of that is still happening. I, I find this to be the most shocking and tragic climate-related episode, which illustrates that we had better try to minimize the risk, because once the risk of these extreme events starts increasing, they will continually outrun our ability to learn how to deal with them. So what are the projections for the future? Projecting the future is a dismal business, obviously. Nobody knows how to do it, and you're always going to be wrong. And if you're right, it's just an accident. So, you know, if you want to project future climate, you have to get a bunch of experts in a room, lock them up, bring, pull the curtains down, 
you know, feed them, make them stay there and argue it out for a few weeks, and even then it doesn't work very well. Uh, and But the best you can do is try to imagine what the world might look like, because the factors that affect the buildup of greenhouse gases are very hard to predict. Underlying factors include population growth. They include the changes in the economy, economic growth, what technologies those changes will be based on, how clean or dirty in terms of emissions those technologies will be. And we just don't know, you know. Fifty years ago, you, did you imagine you'd be sitting here with a laptop? No. I mean, I could go on and on and on about the things that we could not imagine. And it's the same going forward. We just don't know what pathway we will take. We don't know where culture will take us. We don't know whether people are going to turn green right now because it's a good thing to do or whether people are going to say, there's nothing we can do, there are too many other problems. This is number three. Forget about it. We just don't know. I was walking down the street the other day. And this is a true story. I was um, passing one of those Greenpeace canvassers that collect signatures, and they, would, they do global warming a lot, and I listened to the spiel as I walked by. And they grabbed, she had grabbed onto a woman who was trying to you know, sort of get away and walk by, and she was giving a pretty good talk to her, and she said, look, um, it's just one more thing to worry about. You know, by, and that's the thing. You know, it, it's called a finite capacity capacity for worry among psychologists. We just, there are so many things these days, the economy, the Iraq war, who knows what direction our politics and our culture will take us. And that's one of the things that factor into these projections too. And that's why you see this huge disparity in the projections for, that IPCC made from a, a very rapid growth, an economy of the world that just, you know, lets it run, to a world that decides to be green and it turns over, and even without worrying about the greenhouse effect, maybe because of, you know, high oil prices, whatever, starts to reduce emissions, to, an, uh, to a world that sort of collapses because there are too many people trying to grab too many resources and it's not done intelligently and the whole enterprise goes downhill. And we don't know where the future is. You can get people to forward any of these curves and the IPCC won't even make a probability distribution on them. Well, if you take that range of uncertainty and you calculate the levels of greenhouse gases that follow from it, and if you then convolve that with the uncertainty in the future climate change, which results essentially from the, I'm sorry, uh, uncertainty in the climate system, which is a reflection of our uncertainty about the sensitivity of the climate to build up of gases. How much would a doubling increase Earth's global mean temperature? We have a, about a plus or minus 50 percent uncertainty in that uh, in that assessment. You come into, you then derive the following range for future temperatures. Here's today, sorry, here's today, here's 2100. The lowest uh, emission scenario with the lowest sensitivity of climate gives you a warming of a little over one degree Celsius from today. The highest sensitivity with the highest emissions gives you about six and a half degrees warming from today. And if we could get anything in between, my personal view is a one degree or so warming is manageable. There would be damages, particular ecosystems, certain populations would not be able to deal with the consequences of, say, the sea level rise that would result and would have to withdraw. There would be costs, but it would be no, by no means a global disaster, and a country like the United States could deal with it probably pretty handily. At this end, I and most of my colleagues think it's a catastrophe, and we really don't know what we're going to get. What we do know is the part of the problem we can control, the emission side, if we could dial down on emissions, we have a higher chance of winding up on this side of the bars in the lower end with keeping the warming somewhere below 
three degrees Celsius. If we don't do anything, we have a higher chance of winding up up here. This much warming is already in the bank. And I put this curve here, which is the warming, uh, the changes in climate that occurred on, in the northern hemisphere over the past millennium. Here's a thousand years ago. Now, that's a thousand. Yeah, that's a thousand. That's 800 to AD, actually. This is today. And you see the changes are rather modest. The scale here is half a degree Celsius. So even the low end here is a large and fast climate change on a global basis compared to what we're used to. The warming will be biased towards the poles. That's where the purple is, uh, particularly the, uh, the northern areas here, uh, northern North America. Land areas will warm faster than uh, sea. And that's why you see uh, these rapid changes already occurring in the Arctic and why areas like the middle of the United States are really to some extent in the bullseye of climate change. And the ch changes that could be expected in, for instance, water availability are rather sharp and, and, and vary quite a lot around the globe, as I said before. The blue areas, we can expect increases in runoff in rivers. Runoff is the parameter that tells you how much water will be available for drinking or how much will be available for agriculture. So we see large area of the globe, areas of the globe where drinking water and agriculture uh, may see themselves on the plus side, but some extensive areas where we see very rapid, very extensive drying, like the southwestern United States. All the people pouring here, and yet the water resources look like they're going away, like the Mediterranean Basin like southern Africa. So some of these areas, like southern Africa, parts of Mexico maybe, are areas where nutrition and in some areas starvation are already an issue episodically, and those can only get worse. Uh, other areas are highly developed, like this part of Europe and this part of the United States, but they are going to suffer from water availability problems, and we just don't know. There looks like a train wreck between the desire to move south into nice weather and the desire for to have enough water. And by the way, for the developing countries in the low latitudes as a whole, the projection is that food production begins to decline, again, with a warming in the same range I talked about before, about 1 to 3 degrees Celsius. As rainstorms get more intense in the areas that are expected to have more precipitation in intense storms, we could expect to see more flooding events. Uh, this was one in Tabasco a few months ago. It disrupts lives, destroys infrastructure, kills people. Uh, Hurricane Mitch a few years ago was another example. And we could see there's been a trend towards intensification of heavy rainstorms. And this is a problem locally. Uh, there was the event last August, for instance, where there was a tornado in Brooklyn and two inches of rain in Central Park in the space of about an hour. I'll never forget it because my hot water heaters got knocked out. And that's the kind of event that we expect, that we are seeing more of and we expect to see even uh, increasingly in the future. But if you want to look at a country that is a combination of problems, which are quite daunting, I, I like to choose Bangladesh. I've been there. It's a fascinating place. But it really is at the cutting edge of the, of the sea level rise problem. It's a country with a, a population of about 140 million people crammed into an area the size of Wisconsin. And it's almost all right at sea level. The stippling is the population density. And given the current IPCC projections, even if you assume the ice sheets aren't going to do anything spectacular, and given the fact that the land there is sinking for a variety of reasons, this area here below the red line, which is the one-meter sea level rise line, would be expected to be underwater by the end of the century. And about 10 million people live there now. Where are they going to go?
But we have our own problems. This is my favorite abysmal example of stupid coastal planning. It's Atlantic City, New Jersey. I think I have somebody from the New Jersey State Agency here. Um, it speaks for itself. You know, we're just piling up this valuable infrastructure near the coast at the same time that the risk, not just from average sea level but rise, but from storms, is increasing. And I just, I just don't understand it. I mean, I do understand it, but I don't like it. But the thing that drives me uh, up a wall the most uh, when I have nightmares is the concern about what may happen to Earth's ice sheets. There are two large ice sheets remaining, the Antarctic ice sheet, which really has got two parts which are quite distinct in their expected behavior. The West Antarctic ice sheet uh, uh, contains an equivalent of sea level of about five meters should all the ice disgorge into the sea, the East Antarctic ice sheet about 60 meters, and the Greenland ice sheet about seven meters. The 60 meters is probably not going anywhere very fast although we have the ability to pump up the greenhouse gases enough to probably start it melting slowly. It would take a long time, and uh, I think we're not that stupid. We're going to stop the experiment before we get there. But this part here and this part here, a total of about 12 meters of ice, is vulnerable. We don't know how vulnerable, but we know that there are certain parts of both of these ice sheets that are starting to disintegrate slowly at the margins, but slowly in in uh, today in you know, the way a clock goes, but fast in terms of what we had expected. And now there is great concern that these ice sheets are not very stable and will not, and at least this one uh, and possibly parts of this one, may go away much faster than we had previously expected. And that's what recent observations would suggest, although you cannot project observations into the future. You need a model. Unfortunately, we don't have a model of the ice sheet, so we don't really know what's going to happen. We just have a lot of uncertainty. This is the, the, the map of Florida. Should either of those ice sheets go, either the West Antarctic or Greenland ice sheet, Florida today, Florida if either of them goes, Florida if both of them goes, forget this one. As I said, I don't think it's going to happen. Um, that's if the East Antarctic ice sheet goes. So, again, the best analyses we have today, including IPCC's findings, are that somewhere in the range of 1 to 2 degrees Celsius above today's levels, the risk to the Greenland and West Antarctic ice sheets starts to become significant. That is, I could not stand here and tell you with a straight face that I think I have, that I have a high level of confidence that they're going to stay in place if we warm the world that much. But how fast could they go? We could lock it in this century with the level of greenhouse gases we build up. That's what that means. But we don't know whether the denouement would take a few hundred or a few thousand years. And if it takes a few thousand years, it's bad. A lot of land's going to disappear. A lot of cultural amenities are going underwater. But we could withdraw. It wouldn't be, it would be a slow moving disaster and one that we would, I think, be able to adjust to. But a few hundred years, forget about it. That's a much faster sea level rise rate than we're used to, and I just don't think we would be able to deal with it. And to show you the depths of our ignorance, there is this iconic uh, set of pictures which reflects something that happened in Antarctica a couple of uh, five years ago. This is from the Larsen ice shelf up here. Ice shelves are floating chunks of the ice sheet that are believed to hold back land-based ice and prevent it from going into the ocean in a couple, in several places. This is what the, uh, uh, um, the ice shelf looked like in 31 January 2002. The darker melt ponds on the surface of the ice sheet, we saw it starting to melt, but the expected lifetime of something like this was uh, several hundred years at least. That's what we thought on January 31, 2002, but by 
March 5, 2002, the damn thing had just exploded, and it wasn't there anymore. And the glaciers in back of it started running fast into the sea. That's the depth of our ignorance, that something we thought would take at least hundreds of years happened literally overnight. The contribution to sea level from these running glaciers running into the sea is not very much because there isn't very much ice on the peninsula because it's so skinny. What we're worried about is that larger ice shelves here and here and to some extent here may disintegrate and allow a lot of ice to move into the sea, and this may start, be starting to happen over there already. In other words, some of this may be unavoidable. Uh, so to summarize, um, I put all this information together to show you where the vulnerabilities are. This is the amount of warming that's in the bank already due to gases already in the atmosphere. And according to IPCC's reckoning, negative impacts in some region uh, are already guaranteed, in other words, by the amount of warming in the bank. This, by the way, this scale is warming versus pre-industrial time since it's already warmed about three-quarters of a degree Celsius. You have to offset that to get warming from today. So, for instance, a two-and-a-half degree warming from pre-industrial is really about 1.75 degree warming above today. Here are the other effects I talked about. The big uncertainty, the ice sheets, the collapse of Greenland or West Antarctica, the melting of Greenland, the collapse of West Antarctica would be expected if given what we know today, somewhere to be triggered somewhere between a degree and a half and four and a half degrees above today's, above a pre-industrial level, about one to four degrees above today. The risk to crop yields at the low latitudes is in the one to three degree range, one and a half to three and a half above pre-industrial, 30% global extinction in this range, and so forth. You can go down the line. And this is why I say some warming in the range of a couple of degrees looks like the place where the risks get uh, substantial and potentially unmanageable. And so what does that mean about what we have to do about the problem? Let me tell you three things. Number one, uh, this is a little complicated, so just bear with me. These are, equal, these are temperatures that we would eventually expect if carbon dioxide build up to these levels. Today we're at 380 parts per million, 400, 500, 600. The information I just gave you leads me to believe that the safe zone is somewhere in the green and maybe the beginning of the yellow. But basically, if warming exceeds the green and perhaps part of the yellow is where we get to the high-risk terrain, that the emissions you would need of carbon dioxide to stay out of to stay in the green to yellow world and stay out of the red and brown world are represented by these emissions trajectories here. Here's today, here's 2100. You notice that global emissions would need to peak somewhat above today's levels, but somewhere in the next 20 years or so to have any chance, even a 50-50 chance, of staying in the safe zone. So we do not have a lot of headroom to play with. If we don't, you know, this isn't, you know, the United States has to cut its emissions in 20 years below, below business as usual. It's the U.S. plus China plus India, the whole thing together have to make a significant divert, uh, have to divert their emissions significantly from where they would be otherwise. That's not going to be easy. But we have to get started or else not going to have any chance of happening at all. So what would we do? Well, the obvious stuff, the developed countries like the United States have to put in emissions controls, for instance, cap and trade, to limit emissions, to bring existing technologies to the market like wind, like, you know, advanced high um, efficiency automobiles that can at least start the job of reducing emissions. That's a sine qua non for getting anywhere because 
the developing countries are doing nothing until countries like the United States start to act. And that's been the tragedy of the last seven years, just completely lost time. Um, number two, we got to get serious about adaptation. We saw that we just don't know how to deal with these increases in climate extremes, and we're going to have to learn very fast. Third, we have to solve the developing country problem. That is, developing countries are becoming, as a group, the primary emitters. China appears already to be, to be the biggest emitter in the world. The language of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, that there are common but differentiated responsibilities among rich versus unrich countries. We have to put flesh on those bones. We have to make a deal. We have to get in there and talk to these other countries and find out what they need from us and what we need from them, and some arrangement has to be made fairly quickly. Fourth, we need to provide substantial incentives for R&D and for commercialization of technologies that may or may not work, but at least have some hope, like carbon capture and storage. This is a carbon capture and storage operation in Algeria. There is no such operation attached to a commercial-scale power plant yet. This is where you scrub the carbon dioxide out and you bury it underground. We don't know if it will stay underground. We don't know how expensive it will be to do all this, but we got to find out pretty quickly. And maybe it isn't carbon capture and storage. Maybe it's solar photovoltaics. Maybe it's some form of super-advanced nuclear power that doesn't drag along the problems that the current generation of power plants does. I don't know. I don't pretend to know. I do know the incentives are not in place yet to find out. And finally, this is an election year, folks. These guys got to start talking about this problem, or when they get into office, they're not going to do anything about it. So if, you know, as an average citizen, I'm not going to tell you to vote for but if you really want to make a change, the most influential thing you can do is badger these people to talk about the issue, to explain what they're going to do. If you're going to make campaign contributions, if you know people who are wealthy who are going to make big contributions, have them cut the check in half and send half of it with writing on the back. You know, when you tell me what you can do about global warming, I'll send you the other half. That's the only way it's going to get done. To find out about all that's happening at the intersection of science and culture, visit our website at scienceandthecity.org.